That's a lot of detail about one small thing that happened a long time ago, and it's impossible. It couldn't have happened. He's in that place, and a nanosecond later, he's in that place, far away. It couldn't happen, apart from the miracle-working power of God. You need to understand when you read this book that you are reading something remarkably true and remarkably powerful. Or take, for example, the account of Jesus walking on water. Have you ever tried that? It's actually not very easy to do. <laughs> Have you tried to walk on water? You can't. Unless you're God. Or unless God makes it so that a man named Peter can walk on water. It's an incredible document we have in our hands. Or what about when a little boy brings his lunch to some of Jesus' followers, and it's a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. It's just lunch enough for one person. And, and Jesus takes the lunch and gives thanks for it and feeds thousands of people. We read about it in the Gospels, in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as the story of the feeding of the 5,000. But experts who understand those times well tell us that only men were ever recorded in terms of uh, data. And so they tell us that there were probably something like 12,000 people there that day, men, women, kids. And this little boy's lunch is sufficient to feed 12,000 people, and if that weren't enough, the disciples collect some baskets full of leftovers, 12 of them. There was more food at the end than there was at the beginning. That never happens in my house, but it happened here. It's an incredible story. Or what about when Jesus turns water into wine? Well, that'd be a good trick. I bet there's a few people in the room who wish they could do that. If you read the account of that story, it's the first miracle that's recorded in the Bible that Jesus performed publicly. He takes, I won't go into all the details, but he takes water and converts it to wine. You can't do that in a nanosecond unless you're God. That's the miracle working power of God. Or raising the dead, there's a man named Lazarus. He's a friend of Jesus. He's been dead for four days. Four days, not in intensive care unit, not on life support, not in coronary care. This is not high tech. This is Israel 2,000 years ago. The man is dead and buried, and Jesus calls him back to life, and he walks out of the tomb. That is impossible, apart from the miracle working power of God. When you read the story of Jonah, don't dismiss it as a kid's story. Look, it's on those two pages. That's the whole story there. This is a true story. That's one thing we looked at this morning. The second thing we looked at this morning was the fact that Jonah had a big problem. And his problem wasn't theology. Jonah's problem wasn't what he believed about God. His problem was one of obedience. God clearly revealed his will to Jonah and Jonah disobeyed. God told Jonah to go right, so Jonah went left. There's a, a theologian and an author by the name of R.C. Sproul. I don't know if you've ever come across that name. R.C. Sproul's written a little document called The Sinfulness of Sin. You go, well, that's a redundant sort of title. 
Why not just speak about sin? Why speak about the sinfulness of sin? Well, the reason is because we are prone to dismiss sin as something less important than God says it is. So we think sin is just like not choosing God's best for my life or not making the wisest choice I could ever make. But the Bible, this God-breathed book, is extremely clear. Sin separates human beings from their creator. And Jesus is the only one who can make that relationship restored. So R.C. Sproul writes about the sinfulness of sin to drive home the point that disobedience has phenomenal consequences. Jonah didn't just make a, a, a bad decision. He deliberately chose to disobey the living God. The third thing we said this morning was the result of those first two things is that Jonah tried to run away from the Lord. He tried to run away from God. Do you know there are peculiar characteristics that can be attributed only to God? There are certain things that make God God. Do you know what some of those things are? I'll give you just three. You know you can't compare God to anything. I like the uh, songs we sang this evening. Didn't the first one have a line in it, something like, there is no one like you? That's the point. You can't compare God to anyone else. You can't say, well, God is a bit like a loving father. That's not true. A loving father may echo something of the character of God, but God is not like anything. He's matchless. He's holy. He's glorious. You can't say, well, God is so radiant. He's a bit like, a, he's a bit like the most brilliant sunset you've ever seen. And God's a bit like that. He's not. God's not like anything. But a sunset reflects something of his majesty. But God is not like. He is matchless. To whom can you be compared, we read in the Psalms. So here's three characteristics of God. One is he's omniscient. It just means he knows everything. There's nothing you've ever done, nothing you've ever thought, nothing you've ever said, past, present, or will do, say, or think in the future that God's not already aware of. He is omniscient. It means he knows every single thing instantaneously. Can we get our heads around that? Absolutely not. But God is all-knowing. Not only that, he's omnipotent. It means he's all-powerful. There is nothing God cannot do. So in the scriptures we read, is anything too hard for God? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. God can do whatever he wants without raising a sweat. He's God. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And the third characteristic I want to mention this evening is that he is omnipresent. It means he's everywhere at once. There isn't anywhere in the universe, the known universe and the unknown universe, and we're learning more about the universe every year, but there is nowhere that God is not already present. He's omnipresent. You can go to heaven and he's there, or hell he's there, or to the oceans or the sky. It doesn't matter where you go, God's already there. He is omnipresent. And you can 
You, you can run as fast as you can. You can run as far as you like. You can't escape God. And Jonah tried to run away from the Lord. That's the summary of this morning. It's a true story. Jonah didn't have a problem with what he believed about God, but he had a problem obeying God. That's a big problem. And as a result, he tried to run away from God. So what I'd like to do this evening now is just look at three more key points from this precious little book. But I'm going to read chapter 3 to you. So Jonah chapter 3. It's only a very short text. I guess it's um, 10 verses. So Jonah has been swallowed by a fish. The fish has spewed him out onto the land after Jonah prayed inside the belly of that fish. And here's chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. So it came to Jonah in chapter 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Now this is the second time. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. Jonah obeyed uh, the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. Um, a visit required three days, so it wasn't a small town. On the first day, Jonah started into the city, and he proclaimed, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. Well, the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne took off his royal robes and covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, here's what he says, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, it was a sign of repentance, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. But when God saw what they did and how they had turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and he did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Let me make three very simple observations about this wonderful, wonderful true story. Here's the first thing. Jonah chose a convenient alternative to what God had asked him to do. Jonah chose a convenient alternative to what God had asked him to do. God had asked him to go to Nineveh and preach. Jonah decided to get on a ship and sail to Tarshish. So let me just give you the setting here. Jonah lived in a village called Gath-Hefa. It's going to be a little bit of a geography lesson. Jonah lived in a village called Gath-Hefa. It's what we would call today the Lake District. You know what that means? It was the nice part of town. It was Turak. This is Blue Mountain Territory. This is 20 kilometers west of the Sea of Galilee. It is the place where the Jews had their holiday shacks. Everybody wanted to be in Gath-Hefa. 
It's a wonderful, wonderful part of town. Jonah was born and raised in Israel in what was called the Northern Kingdom. So by this time in history, Israel had been divided into two kingdoms. There was the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. The Northern Kingdom was called Israel. The Southern Kingdom was called Judah. Jonah was from Israel in the Northern Kingdom. It was a time of incredible material prosperity. I mean, there was serious wealth. People were dripping with money. The king at the time was a man named Jeroboam, Jeroboam II. He was a a good king. He had restored the borders of Israel all the way from Beirut in Lebanon, all the way down to the Dead Sea. This was a safe place to be. It was a nice place to live. It was a nice time to live. There was a chicken in every pot. The stock market was soaring. People had plenty. Get the picture? It was a nice place and a nice time. Meanwhile, one of Israel's neighbors, Assyria, was making aggressive statements against Israel. There were rumors of war. There were murmurings that there would be an attack. The enemy was rattling its saber. Can you think of situations in the world today where you hear about wars or rumors of wars, where countries who are powerful begin to flex their muscle, perhaps move into territory that didn't used to be theirs, and now say, this is mine? This was the aggression of Assyria. Nineveh was located on a place uh, located on the Tigris River. In the country today, you know what we call the country of Assyria today? Iraq. So think of the Middle East. And the king of Assyria was the enemy of the Jews. In fact, Nineveh was founded by Nimrod, the son of Cush, the son of Ham, the cursed son of Noah, the father of the Canaanites, the enemy of the Jews. I mean the worst place in the world for any Jew to want to be at that time in history was Assyria, was Nineveh. Nineveh was located then very close to where Baghdad is located today. So why didn't Jonah... Just do as he was told when God told him to go to Nineveh and preach against it. Why, did, why all the fuss? Why go on a ship and go in the opposite direction and get swallowed by a fish? And Why all the bother? Why didn't he just obey and do what God told him to do? Well, let me ask you a question. If God spoke to you tonight and said, I want you, I want you to go now, Like, leave the room. I want you to go to somewhere in the Middle East and speak to one of those ISIS terrorists or or, or somewhere in Central Asia and speak to the Taliban or Al-Qaeda. Speak to someone who's got a bomb and some arsenal in his store. I want you to go to that person now and preach against that person and tell them that God's not impressed. And if they don't stop doing what they're doing, God's going to bring calamity upon them. 
what would you do? How would you respond? What would you do if God spoke like that to you? Nineveh was located 850 kilometers east of where Jonah was when God spoke to him. Jonah went down to the port and found a ship that was setting sail for Tarshish. Do you know where Tarshish is? 4,000 kilometers west on the southern tip of Spain. 850 kilometers that way, Jonah said, I'm going to go 4,000 kilometers that way. You couldn't get much further away. Now, here's a question. Is there anything wrong with going down to the seaport and finding a boat that's heading to the Mediterranean Sea and, and going for a sail on it? Is there anything wrong with a cruise on the Mediterranean? Is there anything wrong with going on a boat? Anything wrong with having a holiday? I've never been to the Mediterranean, but I hear that it's a beautiful place. Lots of people cruise there every year. I'd like to go. Anything wrong with a holiday on a boat on the sea in the Mediterranean? The answer is no. Then what's the problem? The problem is that's not where God told Jonah to go. And it's not what God told Jonah to do. And if you do something that is not where God wants you to be and not where God wants you to go, then it is wrong, even though in itself it's perfectly legitimate. Jonah chose a convenient alternative to what God had asked him to do. And people choose convenient alternatives all the time to the things that God is speaking into their lives. They think they can be excused from the will of God because the thing they choose to do instead is perfectly legitimate. But that's not the way we should reason. The way we should reason as followers of Jesus is like this. God, what do you want me to do? And where do you want me to be? Am I in the place and the circumstance that you can most vitally equip me to bring the message of your love to the people I mix with? It might be people across the fence or across the border or across the ocean, but Lord, am I in that place where you intend to use me for your glorious purposes? Am I in the place? Is it Am I caught up in the things that God is doing in the world? What is God doing in the world? What is God burdened for? Am I, am I in the place where God can enable me to play a role in his clearly revealed will for peoples of the world? So, it's not enough to say, well... I know God wants me to go that way, but, well, I'm a nurse. And, and, and nursing is legitimate. And nursing's important. And we need good Christian nurses, therefore I'm off the hook. I don't have to listen to how God is prompting me to go in that direction. It's not enough to say, well, I'm an accountant. And we need accountants with integrity. And therefore, I don't have to listen 
to what God might be saying to me because my role is perfectly legitimate. Can't reason like that. Can't say, well, I'm a mum and I'm raising three kids, therefore I don't have to think about the world or I don't have to think about my neighbours, I don't have to think about people down the street, I don't have to think about people outside my immediate family. Can't reason like that. Even though being a mum is a wonderful, wonderful, privileged, legitimate occupation. It's not enough to say, well, I'm a dentist or an engineer, I'm a dad. As if your profession or your standing in the community somehow exempts you from exploring and obeying the will of God. Jonah chose a convenient alternative to what God had asked him to do. But here's the thing, Nineveh was in desperate trouble. 120,000, not 39 point something million like Tokyo Stu, but 120,000 people who didn't know God and God wanted him to go there and to make a difference. Jonah said, no. It was unsafe. It was scary. I can hardly blame him. I wonder what I would have said. Maybe I would have jumped on a ship for Tarshish as well. But this is the thing. The world won't be reached by people who play it safe. The world will be reached with the gospel of Jesus by crazy people. Fools, the Bible calls us. Fools for the gospel. Fools for the nations. Fools for Christ. People who do the hard things to make a difference to that one or those 120,000 or those 39 million or maybe just a handful of those 39 million. Do you remember, you know the famous uh, preacher who died last year, Billy Graham? His, you mentioned Franklin Graham, his son, coming to Australia early next year. Billy Graham preached to more people in the flesh than any other uh, person alive at the time. Many people, not so much my generation, but the generation before me in Australia gave their lives to Jesus through his ministry when he visited on what they used to call crusades back then. Massive events. Still, the the record crowd for the MCG is still 144,000 when Billy Graham was preaching there because you could sit sit on the field as well as in the stands. He was an amazing preacher. He was asked once... What is the most profound thing he ever read in the Bible? What did he learn from this book that was most profound? And he said this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Remember that song? It's the chorus of a hymn. But Jesus loves me, this I know. Started now, I'm going to keep going. For the Bible tells me so, little ones to him belong. They are weak. But he is strong. God is looking for weak people whose lives have been transformed by the living word who will simply say yes when God tells them to do something. But Jonah chose a convenient alternative to what God asked him to do. Here's the first point. Here's the second point. Somehow, Jonah had lost his spiritual compassion. It's funny, you know, you can be a Christian for a while and start to get a bit immune, perhaps, a bit hardened to the needs of people, forget that they're in big trouble because we've been walking the journey with Christ for so long. Jonah, he really didn't care about the people of Nineveh. When God relented, and didn't bring the calamity 
upon the city that Jonah said would happen. Do you remember I read that little bit to you? Jonah went into the city, started into the city and he said, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's what he preached. And God didn't overturn the city because the people repented. Jonah goes into a bout of depression, gets all upset. Oh, I told you this would happen, he says in chapter 4. God, I knew you'd do that. Gets all upset. Starts sulking because God did something kind for other people. Why did he lose his spiritual compassion? You can read about Jonah in 2 Kings, another book in the Old Testament. Jonah was a well-known prophet of God. And one of the characteristics of a true prophet, you know what a characteristic of a true prophet is? Whatever he says comes to pass. A true prophet of God doesn't have hits and misses. A true prophet of God was qualified because what he said would happen would happen. If what he said would happen didn't happen, he wasn't considered a true prophet of God. And Jonah went into the city and said, 40 more days and it's all over. God's going to wipe out this city. And God didn't. And Jonah was more concerned with his own reputation than he was about 120,000 human beings. Up until this point, Jonah had an impeccable track record. But now he'd predicted destruction and God had relented. Imagine being more concerned with how you look, how you come across, than with the eternal destinies of some man, some woman. More concerned about, oh, how does it make me look, than about their security in Christ. Years ago, I went to a church. I really shouldn't say this because it, this is a little bit naughty uh, to say this. Not about me, but about someone else. I went to a church that wasn't very big, and people would pick kids up in their cars, just kids from the streets, um, like legally, not like pick kids up from the streets. That sounds terrible. Anything like that. It was a real church. And like visit, and like with parents' permission, pick their kids up and bring them to church. Phew. Just realized that didn't come out right. One particular family did this, uh, an, an older man and a, and a woman, and they picked the kids up every week. They're amazing, really. Very tirelessly hardworking people. Pick kids up every week until one day they turned up without the kids in their brand new, shiny BMW. And somebody said, where are the kids? And they said, well, we're not bringing them in this car. Like, this is our new car. And it's too good to put those grubby little kids in. They didn't mean it that badly. They were very fine people. But somehow, you kind of lost that spiritual compassion. It's funny how you can do it. I know my own tendency towards protecting how I look and my reputation and my image. And I let that become more significant than eternal destinies for precious souls made in the image of God. So the very end verse in the whole passage says this, but God is speaking to Jonah and he says, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people 
who can't even tell their left from their right. That's how ignorant they are. Many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? God says. I'm concerned about the city, Jonah. Why aren't you? So the first thing is Jonah chose a convenient alternative. Nothing wrong of itself, except it's the opposite to what God told him to do. If God is speaking to you throughout your life and telling you to to do something, just do it. Even if the thing you might rather choose has respectability. No, do the thing God asks you to do. Second thing, Jonah kind of, his heart somehow became hard to the plight of people. Keep your heart soft. Because if you're a Christian, you used to be dead as well, and God gave you life. Think of all those other souls out there or, or in here who don't know Jesus. Have compassion on people. Here's the final, final thing. There's one little verse that I read out to you at the start, and I'm going to read again. It is so profound, so precious. Maybe this is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. It's a funny little verse to have as your favorite. Because if we went around the room and said, if you, if you know the Bible a bit, you might have a favorite verse. Maybe it's like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that even if you, anyone, chooses to believe in him, you get eternal life. It's incredible. It's not like you get eternal life later. You enter into eternal life now. If you're a Christian, you're already living out the early days of your eternal life. It's just going to be manifest differently when you come into the presence of God after death or at the return of Christ. Maybe it's John 3.16. Maybe another favorite verse would be Psalm 23, verse 1, because these are the two most famous verses in the whole Bible. John 3.16, Psalm 23, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The whole psalm goes on to say, want means need. So because God is my shepherd, I have everything I need. I'll memorize that verse. That'll feed your soul every day. Maybe it's Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Maybe just, maybe just the first four words. In the beginning, God. Maybe that's your favorite verse in the whole Bible, even not even a whole verse. That's enough for me. In the beginning, God, I could take that to the bank. That's a brilliant verse. But I'm going to share with you one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. It's Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. It goes like this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. A second time. Is that cool? Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. It is not too late to say yes to God. Jonah said no the first time and yes the second time. If you find yourself in a position where God has been speaking, maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you've never had a life-transforming encounter with him. But you've heard the nudge of God for you to think about that carefully. And you've said it's not for me. And you hear God nudging you a second time, it's not too late. You can say, yes, Lord. Uh, 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 Like that song you got us to sing, 
this, that surrender song that you said, just giving it all, you could do that in a nanosecond tonight if you wanted. Maybe you've heard God nudging you to speak to somebody about the difference Jesus makes in our life. And you've kind of resisted that because it's, it can be awkward. I, I'm not a particularly good evangelist. I'm not particularly good at standing up and, and, and talking to people about how to come to faith in Jesus. But every one of us can say, you can laugh and you can ridicule and you can not be my friend anymore, but I tell you what, Jesus has made an incredible difference in my life and here's the story. Maybe you've heard God nudge you in that direction and you've resisted, but it's not too late. This is the point of this verse. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And if you hear the word of God come to you, nudging you to do something you've said no to in the past, just say yes. You'll never regret saying yes to God. Change your whole life. To surrender your will to the purposes of God. It's the most profound thing you could ever do. Can you imagine um, a kitchen sink with a dripping tap and a sponge underneath the drip? Drip, 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 and this sponge gets soggier and soggier and soggier and uglier. And, and, and it's got, you know, this spongy, soggy mess. God doesn't intend for your life to be like that. Here's what he intends. He intends for you to be under the tap of his blessing where that sponge is soaked and then he intends to take you as a follower of Jesus and wring you out over the dry places of earth so that others experience the blessing that you have experienced in knowing Jesus. So even if you've said no to God, even if you've hesitated, it is never too late. Yes, Lord, I will obey. Yes, Lord, I will go. Yes, Lord, I will give my life to you. Yes, Lord, I will surrender. Yes, Lord, I, I give in. Have your way. And I tell you, you haven't even begun to dream about what God can do if you fully surrender to him. Let me pray. Father, would you drive this amazing little story and the, the gold within it deep into our hearts and change our lives? I pray that not one of us would leave this building tonight having said no to you, but yes, Lord. Here's the, Lord, the answer is yes. What's the question? I give my life afresh to you. Have your way, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So much, Simon. Appreciate that. It, it just feels like one of those, one of those moments where um, God has been speaking to us as a congregation, definitely. But maybe personally, um, you have just had that sense that you get from time to time. It goes simply like this. You know you're in a room full of people, but all of a sudden it feels like it's just you. And God is speaking directly to your heart. Feels like somehow Simon, Simon must know something about you that 
that God is, God is giving him insight to just speak to you. Believe me, he doesn't. <laughs> but that'll be God just speaking to you, speaking to your heart. And I wonder if tonight you've heard him speak and, and there's in some way or another you are sensing that little inner nudge, Spirit of God himself, uh, just drawing you to him and his purposes. And, and perhaps tonight you'd, you'd like to respond in some way. As we um, stand in just a moment and, and sing um, our final song, Perhaps more than just singing out the words, you can have it all, Lord. Perhaps in your heart of hearts, you are saying, you can have it all, Lord. And this is one of those very, very beautiful, sweet little moments that you have with God when you give it all over to Him. And perhaps you'd even like to um, come forward during, during the song and as an expression of God, you can have it all. And come and kneel around here at the front or sit on sit on the chairs at the front and we'd love to um, just ac acknowledge what God is doing in your life by coming and having a little prayer with you as well. That, that'd be probably a special way to just finish off, finish off the night. Hey? So if you heard God speak to you as we sing, please feel free to come down the front and um, um, just respond in that way and, and we'd love to have the opportunity to pray with you as well. Thanks so much, Simon. Why don't we all stand together and sing You Can Have It All. Lord.